May God the Holy Spirit fill us all with great joy as we again hear God's always good news of his gospel because it is by the words of the gospel that we abound in the hope of everlasting life. Amen. From Alan Shepard and John Glenn, you remember those names, I trust, to the names of the latest people who landed on the International Space Station, I haven't got a foggiest clue who's up there now, but regardless of who we're talking about, out there in space, they all say the same thing. Space travel changed me. All agree something happens when they view Earth from the perspective you can only get when you're really high up and looking down on our teeny tiny little blue marble planet. They sense how big the universe is and how really small and puny each one of us is. To see things from out there is an experience they say you can't really describe. You can only experience it, which is why when we started our service at 8 o'clock, coverage started on TV of Sir Richard Branson. I, who knows? It'll probably blast off at noon. It's like the Super Bowl. But TV coverage, because today he, one of our three billionaires, Elon Musk and, and uh, Jeff Bezos, the, the three billionaires are in a space race. They're all going to take people for a price to space. And Richard Branson's going up to test it today. <laughs> for a cool <clears throat> quarter million dollars, well, let's buy three tickets, okay? Uh, uh, for a cool quarter of a million dollars, he'll take you up into outer space so you can experience that perspective of Earth yourself. I've listened to all kinds of people in radio the last few days saying, oh, it, you can't believe what that view does to you. Okay. Well, what if we had a view of life, all of life, from beginning to end, including your place in life, that would show you how everything fits together? What if we had that perspective? If we could have a bird's eye view of the meaning of life and to catch the purpose of it all. Every generation is long for that, the burning desire to find the meaning and the purpose of man's existence, to know why are we here? Isn't it true that so often <clears throat> life appears to be a hodgepodge of confusion in our fast-paced world? That's why philosophers and historians have always had a place in our culture and in our history to answer the really, really big questions like, why are we here? What is the purpose? What is the meaning of this? Why am I here? We look to our past to understand the present and to predict the future. People keep searching, optimistic, that answers to the meaning of life will yet be found. Some are very optimistic in our ability to find those answers, you know. We call those societies humanists. People eternally optimistic in man's capability and his perfectibility. If God is in the picture at all for such folks, then he's, well, he made the world, but he's backed off and he's watching if he's interested at all because he's given us all the resources all the smarts all the ability to make this heaven on earth 
If we but try, we can make a wonderful life for everyone because you see, science and technology have all the answers. They have all the answers to our problems, but we're on our own. Remember, God's only a spectator. And so for those folks, praying or religion itself is only a sign of puny weakness. They would tell you, get a backbone, stand on your own two feet, do what God has equipped you to do. Don't go sniveling to him in prayer and saying, I need your help, I need your help. He's already given you everything that you need. Of course, in the meantime, things aren't getting any better. <laughs> and so the humanist perspective and optimism only frustrates and bewilders others because they keep saying, we, we were told that in evolution, man was going to be getting better and better and better and better. And I, kept, I keep seeing things getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And so they get turned off, and they sink to a far worse approach to trying to understand what is the meaning and purpose of this whole thing, the stark pessimism of the so-called nihilist. Nihil is a, a Latin word that means nothing. You know their thoughts. We watch the innocent die and the guilty go free. We experience the ravages of nature and the savages of war. Generations live and die, and nothing really seems to improve. Not morally, anyway. So Shakespeare wrote, Shakespeare lived a long time ago, remember? So he wrote in his famous play, Macbeth, Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. It is a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. Isn't that optimistic? The German poet Eric Kestner wrote, We toil and love, eat, yet can never tell the purpose of all. Many feel trapped in a meaningless job, inside four walls with only a TV for companionship. Yikes. So then, is there a goal, some purpose in this inane confusion of ours? Our perspectives are so narrow, so close, so short and stilted. If we could only get a panoramic view of all of existence from beginning, from before the beginning to after the end, what would that show? And that's why Paul's words here at the beginning of his letter to the Ephesians has always meant so much <clears throat> to people of faith, to people who know God. It's such a welcome word. He wrote to share with us the purpose, why we're here. We may call it God's grand design for all time and all existence. So let me illustrate. You've got this friend who has this magnificent home. It's the home of your dreams. I mean, it is huge, it is immaculate, it is beautiful. You couldn't imagine living in a nicer home, and it's all paid for. And then one day, your friend and his spouse tell you, well, we're selling it. You go, what? What? We, we want to build the home of our dreams. You go, this is a dreamy home, you got to be kidding. No, no, no. And they take you to a piece of property, not too far away, but they say, here's where we're going to build our home of our dreams. And they go, and you go, but this is such a hard piece of property to build on. It's going to be such a challenge. 
They say, yeah, but we can see it all. See, we drew up our own blueprints. Here are the blueprints. So over there will go the kitchen, and over there will go the front porch, the back porch, over here are the rooms, and, and they tell you all about it, and they say, we can see it. We feel it. We know what it's good, but it's going to cost you, you say. It's so much time and energy, and it's going to be so expensive. And they say, but it's the home of our dreams. Okay. No matter how much the cost or how long it's going to take, he says, I'm going to build it. Paul's point is this. God had such an experience before the beginning of the world. He had everything he wanted, he's God. But he said, I want more. I want something else. I want a world of my dreams. Paul calls it a blueprint for all time and eternity. It's the mystery of his will, Paul calls it here in our text. He calls it a plan for the fullness of time. Because before there was anything, when there was only God, God had a dream. To create a world full of people he could love and who would love him. I am yours and you are mine, we just got through singing in the hymn. A world he resolved to create even though he knew it would cause him great pain, sweat, and expense. It was going to be difficult to do this. He foresaw man's sin and rebellion. But he said, I'm not going to let that dissuade me. He even foresaw the need for his own dear treasure. That's what we called him in that hymn again. Jesus was his greatest treasure, his only begotten son. He knew he was going to have to come to this world and become part of this world and die in this world in order to save this world. You really want to go through with all this pain and misery, God? And he said, you bet. It's my dream. Nothing is more important to me. He deemed the salvation of his people worth that heavy and painful cost. And while we may not know it, and especially when times are going bad and it seems like our life is going to hell in a handbasket, what we are so prone to forget is when God drew up his blueprint, you were in it. You. I don't mean you plural. I mean you singular. You, 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 you. Every one of us. Every you. You were in his blueprint. God says you didn't just stumble into his dream by accident. A fluke of chance. Instead, before the foundation of the world, before God's bulldozers had even cleared the lot, he saw you in his dream, and you know what? He fell in love with his dream because of you. You! He says, you are why I did this. Because I love you. Indeed, it was because of you that he decided to give the whole idea the green light. In other words, Paul in his text is giving us the astronaut's view of all of human existence. From the dizzying heights of eternity, we come away with the inspired, inspired assurance 
that God wrote us into his blueprints to be his sons and daughters through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not an accident. You're not sitting here today by happenstance. Jesus paid the construction costs, and then he rose again to oversee the project to completion. I don't know when it's going to be complete, but when he returns, we know it'll be done. That included guiding each one of us into life, and into life for all eternity. In other words, Jesus personally oversaw the process that carried out God's purpose for each one of us, because after all, you are in the blueprint. Into our lives, he sent somebody. A parent, a grandparent, a pastor, a teacher, a friend. Somebody who told you the story of the blueprint. Who told you about the Savior Jesus. That was not an accident. You are not a Christian because, I guess that's just the way it was. No. No. God sent that person into your life to tell you the story by the power of the Holy Spirit to work faith into your heart. He came to convince us that we are God's children by faith in Jesus, who led us to the breathtaking heights of that faith, that God really does know and he loves me. Me? I don't deserve anything from God. Except his wrath and punishment, he says, no, I did it because of you. Who promises us that the one who started his project and has kept it alive to this day won't stop dreaming the dream until every last nail and shingle and piece of sod are in place. He won't stop. Some days, some folks say you and I are Christians only because of, well, where we were born. We were born in Christian United States. We were born to Christian parents. And so we were, of course, going to be Christians. And God says, are you kidding me? You know how many people were born in Christian households who are not Christians? You know how many people were not born in Christian households who are Christians? Don't give me that sociological stuff. You are what you are by the grace of God. Whenever scripture brings up these lofty, high, heady, dizzying concepts of election and predestination and God's eternal plan, he writes it not to confuse you, not to bother you, but to comfort you. With the firm knowledge, you are what you are by the grace of God. And he loves you. You are always in his blueprint. And that fact ought to make all the difference in the world to us. True, all around us are signs that many people have not a clue as to the meaning of life. Most people out there are wandering around going, I really don't know why I'm here. We see collapsing moral standards and a surge of crime and human greed. We can become so frustrated or so anxious that we can begin to lose perspective too. Like some astronauts, you know, most astronauts come back and they're awed, they're humbled. They have a renewed appreciation for the divine. Others come back and they're jaded. They don't like what they saw. They turn to drugs or drop out or they lose their perspective altogether. Read their biographies. Some of them took that path. 
Or we may stay close to God in a world that is hostile to him and his blueprint. And the world is becoming more and more hostile to Jesus Christ and his blueprint and his people, his church, you and me. faith and that's the way it is with so many people until 1799 everybody knew that there was something called hieroglyphics but nobody knew how to interpret hieroglyphics it was an absolute mysterious writing Pictures, 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 pictures. You go into the tombs of the pharaohs and you saw them there and nobody knew a clue how to interpret what that meant. Until in 1799 they discovered something called the Rosetta Stone. Remember that? Rosetta Stone is a, an announcement found in Rosetta, Egypt, and it had writing on the top in hieroglyphics, in the middle a language called Demotic, and in the bottom was Greek. Scholars knew how to read Greek. And they knew something about Demotic. And they determined, you know, this is the same message being given in three different languages. So if we can interpret the Greek, then we can figure out what the hieroglyphics are because it's the same thing the Greek is saying. And it became the code to crack hieroglyphics. Rosetta Stone, one of the most important archaeological discoveries in all of human history. Before that, hieroglyphics was meaningless. And that's the way it is with so many people. They haven't discovered the meaning of life or their life. It may as well be, well, hieroglyphics. Their existence, in effect, is meaningless because they haven't cracked the code. But Jesus has done so. Matter of fact, Jesus is the code. When you understand who Jesus is and what he did for you, you understand the purpose and meaning of life. He made it perfectly clear that through him we discover not only God, but God who has an eternal purpose for our lives and who gives us joy in fulfilling that purpose. Now this doesn't mean we have all the answers, but we have and that's why we know the purpose of it all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.